if you're new or visiting, just want to say welcome. Good to have you with us as we uh, worship Jesus. This is just a worship service where we uh, worship Jesus a number of different ways. One of the ways is by singing. So if you ever wondered uh, why we sing, it's because we believe that uh, God not only commands us to sing, but does something in our hearts as we sing and talk about and express uh, these realities of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And so we, we sing towards that end. We sit uh, and we love to sit under uh, the preaching of God's word so we can learn more about who Jesus is and how he has uh, most fully spoken in his written revelation through his son uh, as he reveals himself in God's word. And so we do that. We also uh, worship Jesus by observing the supper. You'll see the tables up front. You came from maybe a background where you, it's called communion or, or something else. But uh, what we do here is this is not a, an act where you receive righteousness from God or, or where you actually become more favorable in his eyes, but uh, a way that we are nourished by remembering the very work that Jesus has done already. And so we want to savor and treasure that in everything that we do. So we do that um, after the sermon portion that we also uh, love to be a general people because God was most generous in giving us himself in his son. Uh, and so we give in the silver boxes on the back wall. And I always say, if you're new visiting, not a regular attender, uh, not interested in having funds, we want you to know Jesus Christ and enjoy him uh, and his worth. Uh, we're going to be in Psalm 27. We've been in the Psalms uh, this summer. Uh, just so you know, we have about three weeks left after this. We're going to just, we've been picking a number of Psalms to look at. We're going to be in Psalm 27 today. Uh, and then we're going to hit Galatians in the fall. We'll start that in September and that'll take us September through Thanksgiving. I know, I can't believe I'm even talking about that. Some of you guys can't stand that I even said that. You're like, I still want the rest of my summer. You have it, just got to keep you up to date. So uh, September is approaching fast. We're going to do Galatians up to Advent in December. So uh, I'm very excited for Galatians. I already started kind of reading. If you'd like to read ahead, go ahead and uh, just begin reading that book. Uh, I believe it'll be a deeply formative study for us uh, in just the necessity of it, especially in light of culture and our day-to-day, really putting our flag in the ground on the gospel of Jesus Christ and never leaving there. Uh, There's one place that we stand. Uh, Psalm 27, let's pray and let's ask God to work, God to illuminate hearts, open our eyes, help us to listen to spiritual truths that we can't discern on our own, and uh, then we'll dive in. Father, thank you that you uh, have given us yourself in your son and that even your son after his ascension gifted us his Holy Spirit so that we would not be left as orphans, but that we would be... um, helped by you, counseled by you, taught by you. We have a resident truth teacher, you say, those of us that that have believed in Jesus Christ, who indwells us and teaches us, even as we sit and hear the truth of God's word. Uh, So would you help us today? Would you help us with anxiousness? Would you help us with burden? Would you help us with areas of our life where we're not content? Would you help realign us again, once again today, um, firmly to Christ? Uh, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for what we have in it. Uh, Use it profoundly. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Psalm 27. We're going to look at an aspect of life that many of us have never dealt with or never will deal with, anxiety. Uh, If you're in this room and you have a pulse and you check it, it's likely that you have in some way, shape, or form, maybe it's even walking in this room today, you're you're dealing with anxiety or anxiousness. Um, I I haven't met a human yet um, or counseled uh, someone yet who has not in some way, shape, or form dealt with um, just the the pervasiveness of anxiety. Um, And it can show up in different ways. And listen, Psalm 27 isn't some like exhaustive text on uh, this is how you, you finally and fully deal with anxiety. I realize there are other pieces 
nuances and layers to personality and how you're wired and, and uh, circumstances. And there, there's a whole lot of things out there uh, medically that, that could be involved in that. But this is just basically going to give you some truths to root yourself in. This is a, a beautiful passage uh, for the anxious. So if you're someone who's like, man, I've never been anxious. Well, then, then read it because you will be uh, in, in, in maybe an upcoming season. Okay, so um, we're going we're gonna to look at where we go in those moments. Um, I'm not going to go straight through this text, but, but show you how all these texts kind of uh, come together and form a firm place, a strong portrait for uh, the anxious. And what you're going to see uh, out of the gate in Psalm 27, really in the Bible, this is why I, I love the scriptures, this is why all the antagonists of the scriptures, uh, you got to deal with its honesty. Um, the Bible is something that does not lay out for us some, some fantasy kind of life that's, that's, that's unattainable, where it's kind of ethereal, and he, they're just real and honest. There's, there's realism in its deepest parts. Now, people are anxious. People are depressed. People are fearful. People are, are uh, downtrodden. People are worried. People are going through a family strain and work strain and governmental strain. And I mean, everything about what we live in today is found in the scriptures. And, the, and the, what's awesome is you'll see the writers of scripture reveal their weakness, their desire to feel things they don't feel, and then pray through those things because they know they can. They know it's possible through what Christ has done. And so that's what you're going to see in Psalm 27 is, is David really praying this. He's really appealing to how he wants to feel. Um, what's encouraging is, this is he's praying this because he doesn't feel this way. <laughs> I mean, how many of you, when, when you're anxious and you ask for something, you're asking for it because you don't have it? right? I mean, you're asking to, to be placed in a particular place with God. You're asking to feel a certain aspect of his presence because you're not. And so that's why I'm excited to see how God might move in this. There is a quote by a famous anthropologist, Ernest Becker. He said this, and he's really onto something, and the Bible uh, really agrees with this and, and shows us why this matters. He says this, I think that if you're going to take life seriously, it means that whatever you do, you have to do it in the lived truth that the evil and terror and rumble of panic underneath everything is real. Otherwise, it's phony. <laughs> In other words, you have to be a realist. You have, to under, you have to admit that there's reason to feel anxious, that the life is filled with fracture and futility. And the majority of what culture will tell you, which is interesting, is how you overcome worry and anxiety is uh, almost, they'll always say in some way, shape, or form, uh, you're worried about something that will likely never happen, right? So, and, and forgive me if you're like with a counselor right now and you're like, oh, wow, I saw that yesterday. Well, uh, that, that's, the Bible will show you something different, um, that, that actually the Bible will paint a picture that you can actually believe the worst can happen and you're still okay. Very different way of thinking. Uh, Psalm 27 is going to show us why we can be okay. So it's not visualizing some future that you don't believe will happen and finding satisfaction there. David has a totally different approach. Look at verse 1. He says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me and to eat, to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. So, so David does uh, the opposite of what the bulk of culture does, and, and David kind of looks at this. He's, he's imagining the worst-case scenario. Uh, he's not a, a, assuming the best. He's imagining the worst-case scenario, assuming that it can happen. Why? He does all this because he knows he then can have a refuge that can stand up to anything. Right? If positive thinking is the only way you make it through life, and you just imagine scenarios never occurring, well, then they do occur, that's taken away from you. That can't be your process anymore, right? That can't be the thing that you find stability upon. 
Um, David realizes, no, he can free himself up to fear and anxiety because he realizes there's a place that he can stand, a presence he can have that will actually be unshakable for those moments. Profound. He doesn't minimize the evil and fear of events. Um, so the Bible's going to show us there's a way of dealing with anxiety and fear that assumes that the worst can happen, and that's okay because you can still stand. Now, I want to stop for just a second. Um, all of us can feel stressed, right? <laughs> yes, okay. Um, um, in my job, I know there, there are natural stresses. I feel like I wake up and the, the alarm on my iPhone, just the minute I hear the noise of it or our son or whoever it is that's getting us up, um, there's just almost at times, immediate panic. Have you ever felt that? Like the minute you wake up, uh, you, you know what's coming to the day, you have a conversation, you have a meeting, you have to do this, you have to do this, just, just you feel the demands. Um, but listen, none of us are kings, right? You might be a salesperson, you might be a teacher, you might be an architect, you might be a stay-at-home mom, you might be, doesn't matter what you do, this is King David, right? None of us govern our own state. Right? None of us have the right to increase taxes. Right? He, so David has unbelievable strain on the job front. Right? He is overseeing a kingdom. None of us have a kingdom. Okay? We have our little kingdom that we think is awesome, but it's not. But he's got a, a kingdom that God gives him, and he also has family issues. I mean, his son rapes his daughter, and then his own son works out this coup to kick him out of his house. That's family drama. I mean, you think you have family strain, family strife. When was the last time your son kicked you out of your own house? And didn't let you sit there or live there. This is deep, profound strain and anxiety. And yet David says in the midst of that, listen to his prayer. This is what's amazing. This is a prayer. With all those things on the front, with all those things on his radar, he doesn't pray that the circumstances would change. He doesn't pray there would be peace in the kingdom. He doesn't pray that, that God would work out the family issues, even though it's good and right to pray those things. He prays wanting prayers in many other places. But he doesn't pray that here. So when life presses down on you, what do you do? When it feels like everything's collapsing around you, what do you do? And he gives you three right here in verse four. I want you to circle verse four. That's your hub in Psalm 27. You dwell, you gaze, you seek. That's what I love about the Bible. You don't have to like go searching for like uh, hidden clues. You just look at it. Um, and he's going to tell you this is how you, you deal with this. Gaze dwell and seek. Verse 4, here's what David says. One thing. Now, this is, this is the big deal. One thing. There's one thing he's after, one thing he wants, one thing he wants to have in his life. He says, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I will gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and that I will inquire or seek him in his temple. David says there's one thing in the midst of all these pressures, all this anxiety, all these fears, all these worries that, that naturally come in life, there's one thing I want. I want to dwell in your house, I want to gaze on your beauty, and I want to seek you in your temple. Now understand, David is asking this again because he's not experiencing it. He wants this. He's after this. He's desiring this. You know why this should encourage you? You're in good company with the Scripture, people. The people in Scripture. I mean, when Romans 16, when Paul says, man, would you labor with me in prayer? He's going, hey, even I need to learn how to grow in my prayer life. Well, if Paul's got to grow there, praise God. I'm in good company. Jesus never says that. 
Jesus never says, hey, Father, man, i got to learn how to pray better. No, he is the incarnate Son of God. He's always interceding perfectly. But you got the apostles, you have other saints, right, outside of Jesus Christ saying, hey, would you, would you help me grow in this? God, would you do these things in my life because they're not present already? So he's asking for this. And he says, I need, I need to dwell in the house of the Lord. I need to gaze on his beauty. I need to seek him in his temple. Now, when he says, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, he's not talking about a physical spot. Okay, he's not, he's not saying, hey, I got all these family issues, I have all this stress of life, so I'm just going to go just have a church service every day of my life. I'm just going to the temple, that's the only place I'm going to be, I'm never going to come out. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about this unbroken communion with God, this ongoing, unbroken presence with God. Um, some of you are going to say at this point a natural question. Um, well, I thought God was present everywhere. So why, why would I want to, like, yearn for having his presence, his unbroken presence? I mean, if God's presence is already everywhere, that doesn't make sense to me. Well, yes, in one sense, there's omnipresence. That's just a big theological term that says God is everywhere at all times, always in his fullness. Okay, so it's not like God in his omnipresence is a little piece of him's right here with us, and then a little piece of, his, piece of him is in the farthest reaches of the galaxies. No, he is always everywhere in his fullness, Yet there's another aspect of presence, which is his manifest presence, his special presence. You'll see this throughout the scriptures, predominantly the New Testament, with the Holy Spirit of God. That there's a special presence of God, a manifest presence, where you go from not just knowing God, but experiencing God. And that's what he's getting at here. He's talking about manifest presence. He wants to see the face of God. You're going to see later. Now, um... Some examples. You can see a beautiful painting and be in the presence of that painting, but not know the painter, right? Um, Psalm 19, Pastor McKinney preached last week, right? The, the heavens declare the glory of God, that we're in the presence. We're, nature is speaking about who he is, that, that we are, but just being in the presence of his nature, the presence of his handiwork does not give you a personal relationship. You have to, be, you have to learn the face of God, which is Jesus Christ, to enter into relationship with the God that you are in the presence of, correct? And so this is the idea that he's getting at. Um, when, when you talk to someone, um, when you walk up to them, you don't look at their knee, do you? Well, if you do, that's a terrible way to communicate. Let me help you. Look up, right? You, you look at their face. Why? That's the emotional gate to their heart. David's saying, I don't just want to know theories about you. I don't want to know you distantly. I don't want to know you generally. I want to know you intimately. That's what he's saying. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord. I want to have this unbelievable presence with you. That's the secret to an anxiety-free life. Did you know that? In many of our anxious moments, we don't need answers from God. We need the presence of God. That's what you're going to see in Scripture. I mean, because here, here, it's amazing. David's not saying, man, I need the kingdom that I govern to be at peace. I need Absalom to get out of my life. He's not saying those things. All those things to me be made right. He goes, there's one thing I'm after. It's I just so need the presence of God. I so need this unbroken communion with God so that when all else fails, I'm okay. When all else is gone, I'm all right. That is the one thing that will steady me. That's what he's saying. He's just reading the text. It's the thing that he's after. He says, then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll be empowered to walk with joy despite circumstances. I'm after something 
that circumstances won't give me. I'm after the dwelling in the presence of the Lord. Here's why. Um, David's getting to this idea that our fears are directly proportional to the vulnerability we have with the things that bring us most joy. That our fears in life are directly proportional to the vulnerability we allow to the things that give us most joy in life. So he's saying if God is the thing that I find greatest joy in, that's the safest place to be because nothing can take God from me. Romans 8. Who's going to separate you from the love of Christ? Nothing. When he has you, he has you forever. When he saves you, he saves you finally. I mean, he's, when you're in his grip, you're in his grip. John 8. I mean, I know my kids. I know my sheep. No one will snatch them out of my hand. He, he knows there's a safety with God that nothing else can give him. And, and this is why all these other loves that we have, all these other things that we try to find that joy in, our, our fullest joy in, as soon as something threatens that, you fall to pieces. And so he's revealing this idea of, man, no, God, you and your will is vulnerable. Nothing can be taken, can take you away from me. If you're my one thing and I most want you, then I'm safe. Um, this is why in some way, not always, but the majority of the daily anxious moments is an issue of worship. The majority of why we grow in restlessness and anxiousness is an issue of worship. And that's what he's getting at. I mean, inside all of us, here's the problem, though. Inside all of us, um, <laughs> we have good things that we desire. God created them. Career, that's a good thing. Sex, that's a good thing to desire. In the context of marriage, now God created it. I mean, all these things, romance, that's a good thing to desire, to want romance with another human, that God designed us to be in a relationship. To want to have a job, that's a good desire. Man, God created us to work. But what the problem is, what he's showing is, anxiety comes along when you make all those good things God things, right? When you make those good desires disproportional desires. When those good things become your one thing, verse 4, that's when anxiety creeps in. Because here's what we do. You start gazing at them, don't you? You start seeking them. You start worshiping them. You start longing for them. And you go, man, if I don't have that, then there's no possible way I can receive life joyfully, right? Because you're so captivated by that one thing that isn't the God thing, and you start warming your heart with something that can be threatened every single day. And every time it's threatened, you fall to pieces, and anxiety grows because that one thing, that ordinary good desire, has become a disproportional desire. And David's showing us that that's why that can't be the one thing that I go after. So, so here's what's awesome you know, anxiety is actually a very good thing in the sense that it helps you follow the smoke to the fire. It helps you follow to where the root is as to why you're anxious. And do you know what usually in many cases the cause of the fire is that the smoke is leading to? The implosion of a false god. The implosion of a false god. A god that could not hold up for you. So when good things become the central value of your life, that's when anxiety comes. But remember, um, little anxiety isn't bad. Paul had anxiety for the churches. It's a good anxiety. 
So, so anxiety can show you're a caring person. I have, I have a good anxiety over my son and my wife, right? I desire them to be safe, desire them to be healthy, my family, the church. I have a, I have a good anxiety. That shows you're a caring person, right? But to have a debilitating anxiety reveals something very different, that you have made a good thing a God thing. So that's why, man, if your spouse becomes your one thing, you'll destroy them. If your job becomes your one thing, it'll destroy you. If this church becomes my one thing, I'll destroy the church. If your one thing is a pastor, that'll destroy you because your allegiance will be to a man and not to Jesus. You you can just search this out in all different areas of your life. If your one thing is career, then the minute that's attacked or threatened, you fall to pieces. If your one thing is I don't know, a relationship with someone in particular and that, that doesn't follow through, then you'll fall to pieces if that's your one thing. That's why God needs to be our one thing. I love how David gives an example in verse 10. He says, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Isn't that awesome? He's just giving examples. David experiences relational strain in his family. We just talked about that briefly. I mean, is this not where so much of anxiety is caused? Relational strain, if we're honest, Right? right? Um, Many people I talk to, counsel with, the strain, the anxiety isn't really always circumstantial. It's, oh, I got to have this conversation. How's this person going to respond? I don't know how I deal with this boss. I don't know how I deal with this coworker. I don't know how I I deal with my in-laws. I don't know how I deal with this or my children or my parents or David had that. David had great anxiety over his family strain and, but aren't they Aren't, is there anything wrong between parents and children here in verse 10? No. God actually commands parents and children to operate in love with one another, to desire to build one another up, to, to walk in harmony and unity and be a beautiful display of the gospel to um, people outside of their own home. That, that's, a, that's a good desire here. But if even a parent's love is your one thing and you gaze at that and you worship that and that's attacked or threatened or removed from you, what happens? You're ruined. Um, I've counseled some people that have, that have had just brutal pasts, especially with parents. And, and some of them, in some cases, say, I just don't know how I'm going to move on. It's over. I just, my life's over. I, I can't repair this. And yet the Bible will say, well, that's because that was your one thing. You can have a perfect father in heaven that governs a perfect family that you can get adopted into with perfect care and perfect love. He never leaves you or forsakes you. And you can have a one thing that's steady, amidst every circumstance in life. It's amazing. So, so, so he's, he's showing this amazing reality here where, where David is, is seeing all these things and he's realizing that, man, my mother and father can forsake me, my spouse can forsake me, my career can forsake me, my, my own looks can forsake me, but the Lord will take me in. The Lord will take me in. Now, verse 5 is going to show you what this produces. Go back to verse 5. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. I love that the Bible never pretends that the day of anxiousness, the day of trouble isn't coming. Right? I mean, I, mean, I, I don't know what Bible you're reading otherwise. I, I, don't you read this book and it's, it's just screaming out, it's coming. Like that day's coming, that day of anxiety's coming, that day of fear is coming, that day of, of trouble and toil is coming, but God will not abandon you in the storm. Right? There's no promise in Scripture that the storm will not come. 
but it's a constant promise that he is with you in the storm, that his presence remains. That's why I love this text. He's going to draw you into his tent in those moments of anxiousness. That's why the manifest presence of God is so spectacular, because he, he, he brings you into a safe place that, that no one else can have outside of the work of Jesus Christ and giving you his spirit. He draws you into his tent, and he reminds you of his promises. This is why David is saying he's going to be safe in the dwelling place. Listen, he's not so stupid to believe, hey, okay, these real armies with real people with real weapons are assailing me. Maybe if I go in the temple, maybe no one can get me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying I'm safest when I'm with God. I'm safest when I'm in his presence. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm safe with you when you are the one thing I want most of all. This is why in verse 6 he's going, get your head up. Get your head up. Seek this. Look to this. Gaze upon this. This is where you need to be focused. This is what you need to have. This is what you need to see. You know, this this is all about intimacy with God fellowship with God. This whole psalm is about this relationship with with God through Jesus Christ that that ultimately makes everything else okay. It doesn't mean you're not going to have weak moments. It doesn't mean you're not going to have weeks and months of anxiety and fear and worry, but it's what you do in those moments, what you run to, what your one thing is. Because is is it not true that the moments in your life that you feel most safe and most content, and most at peace when you're closest to him? I mean, now maybe some of you are going, man, I think I've been walking with Jesus for 20 years. I don't even know that I ever felt near to him. That's a whole other issue. Church has just been a spectator sport. So, so it's not you communing with God. It's you living vicariously through other people's faith. That's a dangerous place to walk. But those of you that have a walk with Jesus where you, you have some sort of spiritual disciplines, where you're in prayer, where you're around fellowship, where you're in the Word, and you're, you're walking with Him, you're being reminded of Him. You're, I mean, is it not true that that's when you feel most at peace? Isn't that where you're almost like, man, bring it on, right? I mean, that's why I love talking to you guys on Sundays, Sunday nights, even though I, I shouldn't. I, I love hearing from different people on Sunday nights because, man, that's where you're just, you're, it's just all clicking, right? Man, I'm fired up. Well, why? I mean, you were communing with God all morning through the supper and through singing and through being reminded through the text of Scripture, through preaching and seeing other fellow saints and praying together. Of course you're stirred up. Of course anxieties are at bay. Of course your heart feels warmed. Because there was this manifest presence of God that God used through the, the graces he's given in the gathering to, to warm your heart and move your heart. And of course you're feeling those things. I mean, that's why I love, I mean, you go on a missions trip or you go on some spiritual retreat or, right? I mean, isn't that when you feel just most close to him and when everything else is a little bit easier to work through? And that's what just David's getting at. It's this, it's this, it's this see, see, You've got to understand, it's not about you mustering up some anxiety-free life. It's this intimacy that creates a peace. It's this relationship with God that, that creates a steadfastness. It's, it's not you somehow outside of him and outside of yourself going, man, I'm just going to try not to worry today. I mean, there's so many places you see this. I love the stoning of Stephen, not because he gets stoned. I, I love it because there's something about, I saw this connection of him gazing at Christ, 
amidst tremendous stress. Acts 7, you see this, right? When he's preaching, one of the first martyrs of the faith, he says, now when, he heard these, when they heard these things, these, they were enraged. This was the people I believe Saul sent out to persecute and kill all the, the new Christians, these Jews that were turning to Jesus Christ and believing it was the Messiah. They did rise from the dead. They're finding salvation and forgiveness of sin. And so, so Saul, who's later Paul, right? That's an awesome story. Acts 9 gets, gets converted, becomes the one who writes, you know, 75% of the New Testament letters. And he goes on to uh, be one of the most uh, profound apostles for the gospel. Well, here you have um, Stephen who's being persecuted by his men and these men were so enraged they're grounding their teeth at him you think your boss grinds his teeth bad at you imagine this with with swarms around you coming at you to stone you to death but he full of the holy spirit what gazed into heaven i want to gaze at his beauty stephen gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But all the men cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And as they were stoning Stephen, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he said, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. I mean, I mean, what gives you a steadiness? What gives you a possible posture of, of not, not ease, but, but solidarity amidst the worst circumstance? I mean, being stoned to death. And here you see Stephen. I mean, he had every reason to freak out. People are gnashing their teeth at him. They're chasing him out of the city with the rocks. But he's so focused on, you'll see later in verse 8, I want to see your face. He's looking at the face of Christ. He's gazing at something. He's going, man, no, I'm, I'm so in tune with the presence of God. that Throw rocks at me. Stone me. That's incredible. I mean, that, that Stephen was able to have his heart in such a place to where, man, the, the, pres- the manifest presence of God was so in with him. He was so in that rhythm with God to where he's like, man, I just need to dwell in the house of the Lord. I just need his presence. That's all I need, man. I know all this craziness is happening. I'm even about to lose my life. But even the manifest presence of God allows me to muster up words that are otherworldly. Father, don't hold this sin against them. Powerful. Powerful. Now, the end of the psalm is going to show you how you gaze and how you seek. So if, if the presence of God is, is that one thing he wants, and the way to get that one thing is by gazing and seeking, we should want to know what that is, right? The answer is yes. We should want to know what that is. So the rest of the psalm, we're going to look at verse 8 and 11. It's going to show you how you dwell in his presence. He's going to say two things. Show me your face and teach me your ways. Show me your face and teach me your ways. So gazing, you could say, is showing me your face. And seeking is teach me your ways. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. So we gaze on his beauty and we seek him. The first is we gaze by seeking his face. Now, (laughs) he's talking about manifest presence, not omnipresence here. And, And what that means is you move from simply understanding something about someone to entering into and experiencing that someone. 
So that's, that's, what, that's what this gazing is. This gazing is not, I'm just gazing at something distantly, gazing at something apart from me. God seems beautiful. God seems holy. God seems just. God's in his infinite perfections, and, and I close the book. No, you move on. So gazing at the beauty of God. This is when you hear a sermon or, or read a text or you're, someone else shares a verse with you and, and you hear a truth, right? You hear a text, you hear a verse and you, you learn it and, and you retain it and you think about it, but, but here's the problem. Most of us stop there. Okay, yep, know that one. Pastor Mike, give, give me a new verse. I know that one. Memorize that in Awana. The difference is you don't stop there and say, oh, I know this. You move on to gazing at God through that truth. You start mulling it over. You start looking at it. You start worshiping it. You start asking yourself questions. What does this verse tell me about God? I mean, do I understand that and believe that based upon my rhythms? You ask yourself questions like, are there false attitudes coming out when I forget this reality? You're examining yourself. You're looking at God through this truth. You're asking yourself, am I living this out? You're reaching out going, I don't, I don't, I don't just want to see something with the eyes of my eyes. I want to see things with the eyes of my heart. That's what Paul says. Right? I, want, I want to have the eyes of my heart opened up. I don't just want to see things visibly. I want, to, I want to know, I want my heart opened up so that affections are stirred and joy is found in manifest presence. Listen, you can come and listen and hear things that are true about God your entire life, but unless you move from just hearing and learning and retaining to gazing, you will go nowhere. You will go nowhere. Your walk with Jesus will constantly hit a brick wall. Man, this is massive for Christian living. And because we have his Holy Spirit, it says if we spend time gazing at his beauty, delighting in these realities, looking at these things, asking ourselves these questions, all of a sudden transformation begins to occur. Now, this takes time. <laughs> this is not, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All right, great Devo. Hey, Lord, I can do all things. Give me the strength. Amen. Heading out the door. I mean, really, 21 seconds? But no one wants to take, take the time to do this. But here's what's crazy. We'll do this with everything but him. We all know how to do this. That's what's amazing. Because when you gaze at something, what do you do? You turn it over in your imagination. Think about how many things you do that with. You know how to do this. You just don't do it with him. Think about the, the ways that you, I don't know, just think about that thing you really want, that career, that vacation house, that particular spouse, that relationship, that particular person. And don't you sit and think to yourself, I wonder what life would be like if I get it. Haven't you ever done that? Will you just start gazing at it? and turning it over in your mind, and thinking about it, and wondering about it, filling your mind with it. And then all of a sudden you start resting in it, and you start tasting it, don't you? Oh man, life would be really good. 
Life would be really joyful. Life would be really worthwhile. And we do it with everything but God. You know how to do it. We just don't do it with him. And that's why David's saying the only way to make the real one thing, the one thing is to do it with him. So we not only gaze, but then we seek him. And seeking, you'll see, Hebrew word here is to receive counsel. Teach me your ways. It's to to receive advice. So this is huge. This is huge. It's not just gazing at beauty and internalizing truths. It's at submitting yourself and walking in obedience to the things that you're learning and seeing. This is how the one thing becomes the one thing. This is, this, is, this is how you grow rooted. This is so important. If you only seek God's commands without gazing at his beauty, you'll just be a Pharisee. It'll just be legalism. And if you only seek right his beauty without submitting to what his beauty says, you'll just live a licentious life. Neither of those will work. This is why I see so many just train wrecks in Christian culture where everybody comes in because they want to feel some spiritual high, which is not wrong. They're like, I want to touch God. I want to experience him through the the singing. I want the, the worship to be so full. And we do want those things. But listen, so many of us want to do that but never submit to a glimmer of what's said or a glimmer of what this Jesus who we're trying to experience teaches us, and that will never work. You understand that? You have to gaze and seek. You have to see the beauty and then say, man, let it fall upon my heart. I will walk in your ways. Teach me your counsel. I'll obey what you say because that beauty, this is how any intimacy is formed, is it not? You can't just have beauty and then raw commands without one another, right? I mean, just try it in marriage, right? You want to gaze upon your spouse's beauty? Don't do the thing that she wants. That'll never work. How's your intimacy? How's your intimacy with your spouse? I mean, the first thing you learn when you get married is, man, well, all of a sudden there's, there's ways I need to serve, ways I need to love, ways I need to extend myself and give of myself because my spouse desires those things. And then as you gaze upon one another, as you follow in those ways, there's intimacy, is there not? This is what David is getting at. So some of us are going, okay, let's land the plane. How in the world? This just sounds odd, Pastor Mike. Gaze up, gazing upon his beauty. Seeking him, inquiring him in the temple. How do I do that? Jesus. <laughs> the answer is always Jesus, by the way. In case you're ever wondering, anytime you show up, non-Christian, Christian, Jesus. But then let me explain. John 2, right? What happens? John 2, Jesus is in his ministry. He's looking at the temple. Hey, tear that thing down, man. I'll rebuild it in three days. Everyone's going, are you crazy? It took 46 years to rebuild that thing. And later on it shows that he was speaking out. He was the temple. He was speaking to his rising after three days of being buried post his crucifixion. It was revealing that Jesus is the temple that we're inquiring him, that we're seeking him, that we're running to him, that he's the face we have to see to see the beauty of God. So we have to gaze at Jesus. We have to get to know Jesus. Do you, ever, you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus Christ. So I always tell you to get in the Gospels, man. 
I mean, sit in them. I mean, I mean, learn these things about the gospel, man. Look, look at the ways that he, in, in John 8, lets a woman who's in blatant sin off scot-free. And shows mercy. Look at John the Baptist when he, when he looks at Jesus going, man, I can't even untie his sandals. That speaks to how holy Jesus is. Look at him in Mark 5 when he's, when he's calming storms. You look at his authority and his sovereignty. You go, man, that's the Jesus that is with me always at the end of the age. I mean, you got to get in the text. you got to wedge yourself in there. You have to see these things. This is huge. And so Jesus was the temple. So here's what's amazing. David says, hey, I gazed and I sought him in the temple. What was Jesus doing then? Or what was David doing then? David's looking into the temple worship, and what is he seeing? He's seeing animals slaughtered and sacrificed. But I think David didn't just see those truths and stop. I think he gazed at God through those truths. And I think he said, wow, this God is really just and really holy that sin has to be paid for that the slaughtering of animals have to happen. This God must be good, and he must be holy. But what did he also see? His mercy. Wow, blood's being shed. Wow, God, this holy God's making a way for me to God. This God is merciful, even though he's holy. This God is forgiving, even though he's just. What is he doing? He's gazing at the beauty of God, and he's... He's, he's seeking him in his temple. So listen, this is what we do. This is how we land the plane. If David could be in the temple looking at sacrifices and have a heart that's rock solid, I mean, how much more is the promise for us that have the living Christ, the lamb that was slaughtered on the block, whose blood, sweat, and tears ran down his face, who says, I'll be forsaken for you so you won't ever be forsaken by me. And then we say with Paul, we behold the glory of God with unveiled faces in who? Jesus Christ. So you know what this means? This means you look at his finished work, you look at his life, death, and resurrection, and you gaze at the beauty of that, and you, that means you don't just take truths that you see, you actually look at it, you consider it. And you, what does that mean for me? Like, what does it mean that Christ rose from the dead, that he's alive? That means every word dot and that comes out of his mouth, I'm submitting to because he's king. He can tell me anything, and I'll follow. I mean, you start, you start gazing at it, looking at it, and you seek to be under his lordship. And that's where intimacy is found. Not just gazing at beauty, not just seeking to obey commands. Those together, walking in a perfect marriage. That's how you begin to experience the Christian life. Did you know that? And that's how anxieties begin to get settled. So some of you are saying, okay, but um, I've got something tomorrow, Pastor Mike, that's giving me a lot of anxiety. And I don't really know how to do this. <laughs> You're talking about gazing, seeking. You might be a new Christian. You might be a non-Christian. I mean, let me just tell you that um, we learn from Scripture that it takes steps. Like, like you're not going to be able to walk in steadfastness and anxious moments tomorrow the ways that you want to 20 years from now. But we take steps 
It's progressive. But let me say this. Let me say this. The manifest presence of God is not something you can claim. Like, you can't make it happen. You can't go, spirit fall, presence in me now. You can't, you can't do that. I'm sorry. He's not a robot. He's not a program. He's not, I press this button, A plus B equals C. However, you know what's awesome? The scriptures will show you. You can place yourself in such a way. You can stack kindling in your life in such a way that with, if the fire does strike, it'll burn hot. So are you doing that? Are you building kindling? You know in Mark 10, blind Bartimaeus, you know what he does? <laughs> Pitches his tent on the road that he knows Jesus is going to come down. And he sets his tent, and Jesus comes down the road, and he goes, Lord, have mercy. Are you placing yourself where you know Jesus is going to walk down? You tracking with me? Like, are you, are you building kindling in such a way to where the manifest presence of God, like, like you don't run around trying to get the manifest presence of God. <laughs> you understand that? Like, you don't, you don't run around just going, oh, I want it, I want it. Oh, I'm just trying to grab it. I'm just trying to, no, no, no. You place yourself along the path where it comes. That's disciplines of prayer and seeking him in the word and, and the corporate gathering and the fellowship of saints. And then you got other disciplines like forgiving others and being generous and not looking to yourself, but looking at the interests of, of, of others. Philippians 2, you got all these different ways that as you do those things, you're setting yourself up. You're stacking logs so that if the manifest presence comes and moves, the fire will burn. And are we doing that? There's a discipline as we do this. This is the last thing I'll give you that is so important we cannot overlook it. It's from Acts 3. Look at this beautiful connection of the manifest presence of God and repentance. That as we gaze and seek, we must repent. That's how we turn from our one thing and make God our one thing. Acts 3.19 says, Repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. That's great news. Repentance brings about forgiveness of sin. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things upon which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Hey, brother, sister, friend, do you want to be refreshed? Never met someone that goes, nah. Okay, tells you how to be refreshed. Repent. Repent. You know what repentance means? Repentance means I'm turning away from the ways that I think into the ways that God thinks. I realize I'm headed down a wrong path. God has the right path. I'm thinking about the wrong things. God's thinking about the right things. I'm worshiping false things. I need to worship the true thing. That's what repentance is. And it's admitting, it's submitting to, God, your ways are best, my ways are not. You know all things. I only know tomorrow uh, and maybe what will happen or a few seconds from now. God, you are sovereign. I am not sovereign. You're infinite. I'm finite. It's you acknowledging, admitting, submitting to all those things and saying, here's my life. Here's my hopes. Here's my fears. Here's my dreams. And Jesus says, I'll give you my righteousness. I'll forgive your debt. And I'll carry you on my back that I'll be the one that gives you the empowerment to now make God the one thing. So repentance does not just, is not part of what makes you a Christian, it's what continues to grow you as a Christian. That's what's so weird. People think, well, no, no, I repented of my sin, I became a Christian in sixth grade at fire camp, I threw the log in and I, I prayed the prayer and now, now I'm good. No, you know that repentance continues? Did you know that you continue to repent of your sin? Christian, non-Christian, repent of your sin and turn to Christ every day. 
You're not getting resaved. It's the ways that he's allowed you to grow and mature as a Christian. Repentance is, I'm constantly looking at my life going, what's the one thing that shouldn't be the one thing? Okay, God, I, I spot it. I see it. Now help me to replace that old affection with a new affection. That's repentance. Help me to gaze at your beauty and not that because that beauty pales in comparison to yours. And then help me to learn your counsel and to walk underneath that. And then God starts to move. So the mark of Christians are not that they're the nicest people, most generous people, most hospitable people, even though by God's grace those should be. It should, they should be the most repentant people. Christians are just people who consistently, daily repent of, I'm headed the wrong direction. I need to be reminded of who Christ is and where I'm headed and where I should be going. And that Christ holds me fast. There's people marked by that. And Acts 3 says, you're refreshed by the manifest presence of God when you say, God, lust is my one thing right now. I need it to be yours. You need to be my one thing. God, my career is my one thing. You need to be my one thing. God, my spouse is my one thing. I need you to be my one thing. I always say, you want to love your spouse incredibly faithfully? Just love Jesus with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength first. And you'll be such a blessing to your family. You, need, you don't need cute tactics. You need him. You need his presence. You need his warmth. Where do you need to repent of the areas where he is not the one thing? And I want to encourage you as we take time for the supper that you would remember that his broken body and shed blood is what graciously, mercifully, even though you have misplaced him in your affections, says I'm still forgiving and I'm still here and I'm still desiring of all of you. Let's ask him for help. Father, thank you that you're a God that cares about our feelings, cares about our thoughts, cares about our desires. God, thank you that there is a place our hearts will be steadied the most, and that's with you. Father, would you help us know what it means and what it looks like in our day-to-day -day rhythms to dwell in the house of the Lord by gazing at your beauty and seeking you in your temple. Father, help us to have some honesty this morning to not just admit what our one thing is, but to be taught your counsel and receive your advice and turn from that one thing to make you our ultimate thing. God, would you help us to, to build kindling in our lives, to get around the right saints, to get with the gathered people of God? Would you give us help in our prayer life in our time in the Word, would you get us around other saints that have a good handle on their Bible so we can learn from them? And learn what it means to gaze at your truth and look at you through your truth. And not just gaze at your beauty, but be taught your counsel. God, we need the Holy Spirit of God's help. A lot of this is divine and supernatural. So would you help us? We need supernatural help and help us to be disciplined where we are asked to be disciplined. In Jesus' name, amen.